Hi, I'm Dr. Valina Wright, the host of the podcast, It's Time You Knew, in service of better women's health. I'm excited to share this month's episode with you. My guest is Dr. Kaylin White, a registered clinical psychologist and sports psychologist who practices in Manitoba, Winnipeg. He's well known for tailored treatments for a variety of difficulties, including those related to anxiety, depression, chronic pain, trauma, and emotional regulation, as well as those specific to performance difficulties such as focus, motivation, perfectionism, dealing with failure and loss, challenging team dynamics, distress tolerance, goal setting, and time management. Anyone that knows me knows that it's important I have this conversation with Dr. White. Joking aside, Dr. Kalen is also a very accomplished athlete competing in the world's toughest butter. A 24-hour ultra-endurance race over a 16-kilometer obstacle course. He successfully completed this, demonstrating the skills that he coaches his clients in. His motivation was to raise awareness of barriers for patients in Winnipeg in receiving mental health care. Welcome to Women's Health, It's Time You Knew, Episode 4 podcast, and my guest is Dr. Kaylin White. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. How are things in Alberta? Uh, Manitoba, actually, yeah. Smoky, just like Alberta. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I wasn't. That's okay. I was in Alberta. I, I, I just came out here from Calgary uh, at, at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, but things are smoky here, just like in Alberta, so you wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> Well, it's amazing because we have smoke in Boston from the fires wow. in the West. It's affecting our air quality. We had air quality issues the last couple of days. So wow. it's amazing the global impact of these fires. Yeah. But to just get back to my question, I know you're a phenomenal athlete. Can you share with us a little bit of your background in athletics and some of the accomplishments? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for the flattering uh, introduction. I guess my sport background, you know, growing up, I played lots of different team sports. And then as I kind of got older, I got more into individual sports and longer running races over the last 10 years or so. So I got into what's called obstacle course racing. These are courses that have a variety of obviously obstacles throughout the course you have to overcome. You basically do laps of those. So I've done kind of ultra distance world championship levels of those obstacle course races. I've also completed several different ultra marathons, which are effectively like 100 mile running races through the mountains, that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed those kinds of challenges, but it also lends a lot of perspective and experience to, you know, my clinical and sport performance work with clients. It helps me get perspective. So, you know, some of the things that people encounter and some of the challenges, you know, mentally, physically, physiologically that a lot of people go through. And it's offered a lot of cross fertilization between sports psychology and clinical psychology. So I use a lot of performance principles with everyday non-athlete clients and, and vice versa with clinical principles that apply a lot in, in sport and performance settings. So it's kind of a really interesting niche. I'm kind of working at that intersection and yeah, I really enjoy the work. So no, that's pretty amazing. A lot of my patients are very, I should say, not that familiar with very athletic lifestyles. As a gynecologic oncologist, sedentary lifestyle is receiving more and more attention for its impact on cancer and prognosis as well. And so that's one of the reasons we're so excited to have you here as a guest, because many people are unaware of the importance of what we do every day, having such a big impact on our health. Mm -hmm. When we look at some of the determinants of health, our 
health behaviors actually outrank clinical care as far as overall impact. If you look at a pie and divide up the slices, clinical care and physical environment, genetics and biology, each of those are 10%, but health behaviors alone are 30 to 40%. And so that's why I wanted to have you with us today. I wish in some ways I had your talents as a psychologist to help people. Why did you choose a career as a psychologist? To answer that, I'm kind of piggybacking on what you were just talking about. I, I think I became aware fairly early on in my training like as in exploring in university, the kinds of things I was interested in, just, just how big the behavioral component is to health. I've, I've always been interested in kind of helping people. And I think wanted a career clinically in working with people and, and realized that psychology is a relatively immature science. I mean, it's 140 years old or something, but it's late in the scene. And then there's lots to know. There's lots about the brain that we don't know. Uh, as you pointed out, with respect to health, there's a huge behavioral component, I think. And I cannot remember the source, but they were saying, I think, something to the effect of 70% of the types of things that physicians see and drop in clinics, there's a behavioral component to the condition in terms of what a contributing factor. So as you point out, there's a big, big behavioral piece to health and what factors into longevity and, and illness. That was part of it. Part of it is, again, just uh, I like a challenge. And there's just so much we don't know about the brain and so much we don't know about psychology. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's a daunting but exciting uh, area of, of, of health. I'm glad you like a challenge because I have like some really challenging patients that I need your help <laughs> to try and help sort out better ways to approach. In women's cancer, the most common cancer we treat is uterine cancer, and almost 50% of that is lifestyle in part related with obesity, decreased physical activity, and then those comorbidities of diabetes, hypertension, they all kind of fall together. When we talk to patients, and we've tried to do some research to help people overcome some of the barriers they have in achieving a healthier lifestyle, a big part of it is behavioral in that a lot of women, in addition to having a diagnosis of uterine cancer, are already on antidepressants because they have some depression or anxiety in their life. And obesity is also a risk factor. So we get these clusters or sort of not a stereotype, but some very common themes in women ending up with uterine cancer after menopause. When you have all of those issues, how would you best approach someone to try and help them make some of the changes? Like, I know all the excuses, but I don't know how to help people get past them sometimes. You're right about the constellation of symptoms. It can be challenging when people are experiencing so many things at the same time. Boiling that down to kind of a, a, a silver bullet that's going to tackle it all is just, it's a nice pipe dream. But the reality is, what you want to do, I think, and this is the case for most clients, I think, is resource them with a, a toolbox of various things that they can use. It's not meant to be overwhelming or not meant to complicate things, but give them the right tools that they can use for the right things. And so what that means, I think, at the beginning for a client that you're describing is uh, the first place I would start is what we call stabilization, which just basically means in enhancing the person's capacity to physiologically cope with distress and pain. So most of the time when people are experiencing some behavioral paralysis, like they just cannot get moving, they can't actually make a decision that leads to action, it has to do with capacity. It's a person, it's not a, you know, a willing, you know, a stubborn unwillingness. They want to get better. They do want, the vast majority of people do want to actually act and, and behave in ways that are in their best interest. It's a question of capacity, whether the person actually is capable of doing that. And so, so the first place we would start is giving them some skills to actually tolerate distress. 
And so there are a variety of tools that we can start with to do that. But starting with the basic physiological level, it has to do with usually targeting sleep first. So seeing what sleep looks like. Sleep is a huge factor that can lead to a positive or negative feedback loop of symptoms, depending on how they're sleeping. So usually we look at the sleep to clean that up. And if there's some things that are obvious that are decreasing a person's quality of sleep, it's not necessarily about getting more, but higher quality, increasing what we call the sleep architecture, getting nice, deep sleep, recuperative sleep. So sleep is a big one that we start with. Obviously, exercise. This is one of the sticking points for a lot of people is, is getting moving. And again, it has to do with capacity. So what one of the things we do as part of stabilization as a way of getting some exercise into the system, getting some activity, is starting with very, very basic steps. And if still there's some paralysis or a person's not able to get some activity going, it means it's not simple enough. It means the, the step is too big or too complicated. And so it really is about starting small and making sure that the step in terms of getting moving, like going for a walk, we're focusing on some very basic things. And if you're interested in how to do that, we can talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of how to boil down those steps into something that's actually doable. But exercise and sleep are very big because those really enhance a person's capacity to tolerate distress. And we know the kind of biochemical mechanisms that are at work there that help a person to be more equipped to tolerate higher levels of distress. And another one, and this is more of a kind of trainable psychological skill, there's, it's a bit of a buzzword too, is mindfulness training. And we can talk more about that if, if you want to. But mindfulness training is, is an incredibly powerful tool and skill for just learning to tolerate and accept, it doesn't mean agree with, but accept distress symptoms and get unstuck from them in order to take action. And so mindfulness is a very important skill sometimes that we start out with just as a way of increasing that distress tolerance. I'm just mentioning a few here, but it really is about giving them the right tools at the beginning that allow them to tolerate, as I said, just tolerate distress so they can actually take action. I love your top three, basically sleep, number one, exercise and, and mindfulness, because they're are all things that if someone had the right mindset and motivation could implement, right? There's actions you could take immediately that someone could put in place. Yeah. And, and I think there's another trainable skill that is thread throughout this whole conversation in terms of like really dealing with behavior change. And it is training self-compassion. This is something that it sounds like kind of a soft pseudoscience -y kind of a thing, but it is, it is critical to high performance, it's critical to just managing behavior change is being compassionate with yourself and recognizing that these kinds of changes are difficult to do. You're going to have times when the plan that we lay out, it's not, it doesn't happen. Then the conversation is about, okay, so why didn't it happen? What got in the way? And how can we solve that? And really having some sense of humility and compassion for yourself and that you're going to struggle with applying these things sometimes, especially under stress. And especially when, again, our capacity is limited. We only have so much gas in the tank. That trained self-compassionate response is actually one of the critical features that allows people to kind of stay kind of digging into the work and able to ride out those what we call like failures or, you know, the times when you don't follow through in order to kind of get back on the horse and, and try again. So, so we can talk about all these skills, but a lot of the time a person's not going to have the capacity to do that. And the self-compassion is what gets them back into the game and trying again so that it becomes uh, more habitual over time. If someone wants to increase physical activity. Let's do that one just to focus on it. Yep. Just putting sneakers on and going for a walk. Many people, I think, set goals that are beyond really what they should expect. Then they fail. And then it's a negative feedback loop because again, it's that perfectionism and not 
wanting to be able to do something, not accomplishing it, and then not having the self-compassion like you pointed out. What tricks of the trade do you have when you speak to your clients to try and get them to start with respects to goal setting as the number one? Yeah, so I think reflecting on a time that didn't work and really unpacking and slowing it down, unpacking what actually happened in that moment in the attempt to kind of get up, get your shoes on and go for a walk. What was actually happening in that moment? Because this is where we get into the psychology of like what's actually going on for the person, right? And if it's the belief that, well, if I get up, I'm going to have to go for a long walk, then it's about adjusting expectations that no, it's just what it's actually about is just getting up and putting your shoes on first and focusing on the first step. So sometimes it really is about, like you said, calibrating expectations and setting the goals really, really small just to break the paralysis and get things rolling. Usually once a person leans off the couch and they put their shoes on, they're off and running, right? And then they're out the door and they're walking. It's just, it's breaking that paralysis. And if the perception is it has to be a big commitment, that can lead to the paralysis. Whereas if it's just a commitment to lacing up your shoes, right? Sometimes that's the thing that gets the shoes on. So the first part is obviously setting a very simple, doable goal that a person feels about 95% confident that they can follow through with. But that's not the end of the story. A lot of people, and this is one of the main barriers psychologically to getting moving, is there's a perception that we have to feel a certain way before we do something. I have to feel motivated. I have to feel like I have energy before I can get up and go for a walk. So the idea is like, well, I'm tired, so I can't go for a walk. That's kind of the, the illusion. It's a very powerful illusion, right? Is that we have to feel a certain way or think a certain way in order to behave a certain way. And that's what we call cognitive fusion. And there's a kind of a cheesy saying that I developed. The fusion is an illusion. There's no inherent connection between the way that we feel or the way that we think and the way we have to behave. You can still behave in a way that is incongruent with how you're feeling. You just have to know how to take it with you for the ride. So what I'm essentially saying here, kind of a verbal way of putting this is, I'm feeling tired and I'm lacing up my shoes. I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling depressed, and I'm leaning off the couch and I'm moving towards the closet to put my shoes on. You don't have to feel a certain way first or even think, right, like I want to go for a walk in order to go for a walk. You just have to know how to take that feeling and take that thought along for the ride as you live your life, as you engage in that behavior. And circling back to one of the skills I mentioned earlier that can sometimes facilitate that is mindfulness. Mindfulness, again, is the trained ability to observe your experience in real time without judgment. So what you can do is you can say, I notice, I'm noticing anxiety right now. I'm noticing fatigue. I'm noticing a lack of desire to go for a walk. And I'm taking these things with me as I engage in my life. So mindfulness is, again, a skill that can be used. It's not, its primary function isn't for that, but it can be used as a secondary benefit to achieve that effect. And the other thing I'll just tack on here as an additional strategy, and this, is, this goes back to the language that I was just using, is the power of and. Is saying, I feel this way and I'm doing X, Y, Z. I'm going for a walk. Is just to say, you know, I don't have to feel or think in a congruent way. It's just saying, I can take this and I'm, I'm still going instead of a but, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in addition, it's kind of like that more common phrase people say, fake it until you make it, meaning you may not feel like you're able to accomplish something, but you show up anyways and you do it. Yeah, 
I guess the only tweak I would just say is you're not faking anything. You're you're completely aware of what what you're doing. I know what you're saying. You're faking the feeling. It's the emotion, right? Like, say you have to give a talk and you're just anxious and you don't feel you you had it. <laughs> you got it. And then you you show up and you give your talk and then it's done. But in the moment, you certainly didn't feel like you had everything under the under control to go ahead and perform. Yep. Yep. Exactly. The self compassion part is critical, I think, because a lot of people do get stuck on perfectionism and don't move forward if they feel they aren't able to perform to a certain standard. And that can really slow people down in moving forward. Do you find that ever an issue or how any tips on how people can deal with some of those thoughts? Because it's it's actually the thoughts in our heads that slow us down a lot rather than anything else. Yeah, that perfectionistic drive, and I'm I'm not saying perfectionism in a pejorative way. I'm not saying it is a bad thing. It depends on how you define perfection, but perfectionism, absolutely, I I encounter that a lot in my work, especially with. I mean, it's not exclusive to like high performers and athletes. It, it's it's pretty common in, in many people outside of performance disciplines. But just and and of course, we're we're doing crash courses here, so there's lots we could talk about. You know, this conversation could be a, an entire episode on perfectionism. But just as a quick trick is to define perfection not as a specific outcome, but rather a process. So a process of striving towards an ideal. So if you have an ideal of like what you'd like to look like physically or what your health would look like or or what your life would look like, it's okay to have that vision, the ideal, the perfect life or the perfect day or the perfect walk or, or run. But you don't want to be rigid in defining perfection as that outcome. Perfection is the act of striving towards and approximating as closely as you can that ideal. It's the process of learning and striving for that, that that's perfection. And embedded in that is that you're going to have failures sometimes. You are going to have setbacks. Mathematically, by definition, half the time you're going to be below average, right? So what it's about is it's about sometimes failing and sometimes having setbacks and learning from those, applying the learning uh, that you have from those experiences, apply the learning moving forward, and then letting go and leaving the rest and moving on. And being analytical, right, rather than kind of emotional about it. What do I need to know from that failure? What do I need to know from that experience? Apply that information moving forward and use that. And it's the process of learning from success and learning from failure and setbacks. The process, using that information, that's perfection itself. And it never really ends. We just kind of get better and better and better at using the information that we gather. And the process includes failures and setbacks. And embedded in that is also self-compassion with the very fact that we're human and we're going to fail and we're going to have setbacks sometimes and that's okay. I know it's very cliche and kind of cheesy to say to err is human, but that it's very true and it is very central to what we're talking about is accepting that we're below average half the time and and it's what it's about is just being in the process of getting better. Agree, 100%. Those are great ways to look at it. We see with our Olympic athletes, some of the fallout from perfectionism and what's going on recently in uh, Japan. As far as learning from our failures, often we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes too. I think when patients come in and they're so frustrated, we may not have the tools as a gynecologic oncologist to do the appropriate counseling I'm realizing now speaking to you. (laughs) So I think referring makes a lot of sense if people aren't able to achieve some of these goals and they're becoming frustrated. There's this decision tree between if a person has an outcome that they wanted, 
the approach to take versus an outcome that they didn't want the approach to take. For a person who they tried something and it worked, you want to have them savor the feeling, like enjoy the success, savor that. And if you want, be analytical and reflect on what worked to get that success. The approach is different if a person gets an outcome they didn't want, if they had what they would consider to be a failure. The ideal approach in a situation like that is, is to encourage them to be strictly analytical. What do you need to know? Just temporarily for the moment, shelf the emotions and just look at what do you need to know from this? Like what didn't work? What was it that you think tripped you up here or caused you know paralysis or the outcome to go the way that it, you didn't want? There may be something that they did or, or didn't do that was something to learn from. Sometimes it's just bad luck and that's all they need to know is like, well, I did everything right and it was just bad luck and I have to let that go. But whatever the case, the idea is to be analytical about it. And then once they have that information, just say, okay, now take that with you and, and let's, how are you going to apply that moving forward to the next situation? And then the residual emotion, it's not to say they can't like process the loss or grief around like if there was an actual tangible like loss that happened without failure, not to give them space to like grieve that and feel that loss. Of course you want to do that. But beyond that, the rumination and the worry about that, I mean, it serves no purpose. It's about, okay, it's done. It's over. Let go. And again, mindfulness can help with this. It's about like letting go and uh, not getting caught up in it. And taking the information and moving forward. So there is this different approach between a success versus a, what they would consider to be a failure in being analytical in cases of failure and not getting caught up in the emotion, which is something that happens a lot with perfectionism, right? There's this fixation on that a mistake was made and it's hard to let that go. And the faster a person can learn to let go of what is out of their control, and this is a bigger topic too, right? Letting go of control where we don't have it. The faster a person can do that, the better they'll perform, the less mental health issues there will be and the faster they're going to move on. The other, you know, as a oncologist, life-changing things that I have to talk to patients about are the actual diagnosis of cancer. And so when we speak to people about cancer, there's a push to try and have people be educated and motivated at that point when they receive such a devastating diagnosis sometimes mm -hmm. people say that's the time to intervene that you can have people reflect and they're more motivated to make behavioral change i'm not sure that's necessarily true i think it is a, a time when people can be overwhelmed but they also self-reflect where they may not have mm -hmm. realized the impact of their daily habits on their health and so once they're given that diagnosis, do you think it's the best time to intervene with this lifestyle intervention and other tools that we're talking about? That's a good question. And I might have to defer to your expertise and judgment in this area because I might be talking out of scope here. I, don't, I do work a lot with trauma, but in this particular case, I don't have a lot of experience in with clients that have just received a diagnosis of cancer, the steps to take. But I imagine I'm, I'm just gleaning information from similar situations I've had with clients where I think there has to be some space at a time like this to allow them to actually process the information, and which can be traumatic. There's a lot of often grief and trauma that goes along with a, a big piece of information like that. And a lot of clients, not only uh, are they not receptive to behavior change, they may not even be processing information at some basic level at that point. They might just be completely like a lot of the more complicated executive functioning is just knocked offline when a person is going through a traumatic experience, potentially like that. So what I would say, just to answer your question, I think is there needs to be some space initially after something like that to allow a person to just process the emotional experience that goes along with that information. And then on the heels of that, I think sometime after, I think would be a time to provide them more, the resources of 
this is what helps people cope. This is what we know scientifically will help with managing the experience of cancer from a psychological, emotional perspective. These are the things that we know work. I wouldn't say immediately after the diagnosis is the time for that. People do talk about how it's very, very difficult to hear anything that happens immediately after hearing that. But maybe I'll put it back to you and kind of get your, your take on that. I don't know if that, <laughs> that makes sense or not. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously, it depends on, in part, the significance of the cancer diagnosis, because there's such a broad range of cancers and different outcomes and treatments, right? And I would agree with you. Most of the time, people are able to process, but they don't always hear. And we usually have a couple of follow-up visits required where they ask the same questions and obviously weren't able to process initially. And so it's a bit of a journey. I do think that it, in follow-up, when they're coming after they've completed treatment, if there are scientifically proven interventions that can improve their prognosis and overall health, then we should address them. Yeah. The best way to do that, I'm not certain of the answer yet. We've tried a couple of different things. And we do refer to behavioral health, where we obviously can recognize that people are having anxiety or depression that needs attention. Mm -hmm. But as far as the lifestyle medicine, you know, medicine is really a disease-based model and to motivate them just to understand that their health could be better if they did some behavioral change. I think that's, that's sometimes the harder sell because people, yeah. you know, people are busy, people have other priorities and they may not even know or have a history of, of knowing personally what good health really means, like how much better you can feel when you're, when you're yeah. in good health. Well, yeah. And I think your point there about their other priorities sheds light on potential direction to go in with clients to increase ownership of those behaviors and maybe even get some movement in that direction. And what I mean by that is if you can explore or if someone can explore with, with that person, what their values are, what, what brings their life purpose and meaning. It may be, you know, their relationships with family. It might be finances. It might, I mean, whatever drives a person, whatever brings a person a sense of purpose and meaning in their life. If you can show how these health behaviors actually link to and enhance those things in their life. Like, well, if, if I'm engaging these health behaviors, I'll be around for longer. I'll be able to be more present with my kids. So I'll be able to, to parent more effectively. I'll also model good like distress tolerance and, and health behaviors for my kids or my family. But those are just examples of how these kinds of health behaviors can map onto what has deep meaning and, and um, value for a person. Sometimes exploring those values and making a direct link with the health behaviors in terms of how it's serving those values can create ownership in the person and take you right out of the equation as the physician or the psychologist, making sure the person's hearing it's not just because I'm being told to do it. It has nothing to do with my psychologist. This has to do with me living a life that I feel is, is purposeful and meaningful and engaging in the behaviors that represent those values. And that's something that sometimes can create the discipline and the push to lean forward off the couch and lace up your shoes when you know that it's going to keep you around longer to spend time with your kids as an example of if family is important. But you can, I mean, you can do this with any value. I've done the, the values exercise with many clients and you just have to think outside the box a little bit, but there's always connections between health behaviors and, and virtually any value that a person holds. With your career, I'm sure you've had such a broad experience in different settings if you think of a clinical success story of a client that you could share with us where behavioral health changes had such a huge impact on, on their, their life and, you know, it just 
their enjoyment and why you do what you do. A success story. It's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure this is going to be a satisfying answer because I, I really don't, I don't have one that stands out, but a collective. And in some, what, I guess in answering the question, it's a bit of a contradiction because on the one hand, in my work with clients, I see just how different people are in their perceptions of the world and the things that like how they live their lives. And it can be staggering and stunning sometimes just how different people think about things and think about the world and, and being privy to that in my work with people. It's just it's so cool to see how different we all are. And at the same time, and this is the contradiction is also seeing how similar we are, seeing how we we have this drive to connect with one another obviously it's an innate drive to be close to one another to be accepted by each other to to not be rejected and to be part of the group and to be safe with each other and that you know is is something that i think has been so cool to learn and to see and be witness to is just how in some ways we're all different and we're all striving for the same thing just being able to be part of people's processes, like just to be part of a tiny part and get a, a tiny glimpse of a person's inner world and get to be part of their work and development in that way is just, it's such a privilege. And I wouldn't say that that's a success story, but this is, I think the thing that gets me excited uh, about working every day is that I just get to be part of this really challenging and, and rewarding work for people that is, and I think this goes back to the self-compassion is just inherently incremental. Uh, people do have these aha moments where they put pieces together. Sometimes those insights can be big. But the bulk of the work is just incremental change and getting better and better gradually at catching ourselves and, and, and just making these changes over time. We're all climbing our own mountains in that way, right? So I guess just seeing that process unfold in people is probably the thing that brings me the most joy in my work. No, that's a great answer. I kind of, I have some of the same sentiments with regards to the privilege of being a physician and seeing people's lives and having their trust to perform surgery. And obviously, you know, how they cope with that. There's such a wide range of human behaviors around a response to a cancer diagnosis or even to being hospitalized and having to leave your home and come into an unfamiliar environment. It's really a pleasure to be able to work with people and help them cope with uh, cancer diagnosis, which is what I do most most days. Well, yeah, and props to you for doing that. That that would be very challenging. But I do exercise every day <laughs> as a way to <laughs> as a way to help cope with that because I, I, you know, for me personally, I do a lot of exercise and sports because it makes me feel so much better. I just want my patients to feel better too. And so that's I, I, why you're here speaking to us because I don't always have success trying to motivate people to realize how much potential some really tiny changes they make in their life on a daily basis can have. And it's not it's not just a one-time change. It's, it's developing these healthy lifestyle habits. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to share your experience. Dr. White, it was a real pleasure to speak with you. I've learned so much in this very short conversation. I've learned that when I try to speak with newly diagnosed cancer patients, it may not be the best time to address all the risk factors. On the other hand, referral for behavioral health, I think, is a really important part of any cancer patient's care. And making those referrals, not only to mental health experts like yourself, but perhaps to physical therapy, if that's one of the barriers to people becoming more active, or psychiatry, if anxiety, depression are in the way. 
Again, it was just a, a real pleasure to have insight into how we can better help our patients facing a cancer diagnosis and addressing barriers to better health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can visit my website, melinawrightmd.com, and subscribe by email to receive the top five ways to improve your health and wellness or direct message me on Instagram. Thanks for listening. It's time you knew.